In this episode, Kate Perry, a partner at RBP, is joined by Claire Sieber, who's both a GP and an accredited mediator. They're going to be discussing the benefits of mediation in resolving disputes within GP partnerships, PCMs, and the workplace, and how you'll be able to access this service. Accountancy on Prescription by RBP one of the leading firms of medical specialist accountants. We know what you find tough, but don't you worry, as we know our stuff. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Accountancy on Prescription. Today, I'm joined by Claire Sieber, who is a mediator who specialises in dealing with GP disputes. In fact, she's a GP herself. Hello, Claire. Hi, Kate. Thank you for having me. Perhaps you could start by giving us your background, which is, even at your young age, quite detailed, and how you became a GP mediator. Yeah, thank you. Well, first and foremost, I'm a GP. I've been a GP now since 2013, so what, 10 years. And I live and work down in West Sussex. I do about six sessions a week, currently as a locum, because I've got a young family and other bits and bobs that I do that are good to be talking to you about today. And I spent about four or five years working for local medical committees down on the South Coast. And as I'm sure your listeners will know, local medical committees, they're there to represent support and advise GPs and their practices. And a lot of that support is often about conflicts. And I realised when I was doing the job that I quite liked that side of it. So I went off and did a law degree and then became trained and accredited as a mediator with CEDA. CEDA is the Centre for Effective Dispute Resolution, who are one of the main mediation providers and trainers of mediators. And then I've been doing this work now for about three years on my own, so commercial and workplace disputes just in the GP setting, so partnership and PCN disputes and some workplace disputes between employees and GP practices. And I do a bit of teaching and training as well about conflict too. Right. So that's quite interesting. And I have to say that during my work, probably over the last 25 years, I've come across quite a fair few disputes for varying reasons, whether it's with ex-partners or new partners who've just joined and don't quite understand the setup. So perhaps we should start by explaining what exactly mediation is. Yes, that is a good place to start because in fact, I think it is misunderstood. So mediation is a process whereby a mediator, like me, an independent person comes in and helps the people in the dispute to resolve the issue for themselves. Obviously, that requires a lot of help, but it's not advice and it's not making any judgments or decisions for people. It's helping them to come to a decision themselves. And there's some key principles to it. First of all, it's voluntary. So everybody has to be happy to take part in it. And equally, at any point during the mediation, anybody is allowed to walk away and just say, no, it's it's not for me, this. And they can do that with impunity and legal impunity. There's also no obligation to reach an agreement. So you could even get as far as having your pen on the paper and just decide not to sign it. And that equally is okay. It's also confidential. So nothing that gets talked about in the mediation, whether it's successful or unsuccessful, can be reiterated afterwards. 
And it's also legally confidential, a thing that the lawyers call without prejudice, which means that nothing that anybody says as part of the mediation process can be used against them in either an ongoing dispute or a new legal proceeding. So, for example, if somebody was to say sorry, that can't be used against them if somebody might, in the process of making an offer, say, I'll tell you what, I'll pay for that bit if you pay for this bit. Somebody then couldn't take them to court and say, well, we should sue them for that bit of money because they said in the mediation they'd pay for it. Mm-hmm. So it really does give you a safe space where you might as well try your very best to get the issues resolved on the same day, knowing that you can't possibly, no matter how much you might fluff it up, make things any worse for yourself. You're just losing the day of time and the cost of the mediator. But hopefully you'll get an outcome. That's really good to know. I think to know that you can have a talk, so either with your partners. So would you actually meet with the partners? Or I think one of my clients had the LMC help them and they spoke to each party individually because one party actually didn't want to speak directly to them. So can you do mediations sort of separately, if you see what I mean, relating to both parties? Or do you mainly try to get everyone in the same room at the same time? Yeah, it's ideal if everybody can be in the same room at the same time. Even then, the room doesn't need to be a face-to-face room. It can be a virtual room. And even then, it will only be for a few minutes. We normally have a joint meeting at the start of a mediation that's very heavily sort of chaired, if you like, by the mediator, where everybody just says a little bit about how they're feeling and more importantly, what they want, with everybody else just letting them speak uninterrupted. And then we go off into separate rooms and negotiate. So it's only a very, very small amount of time. People have to be physically together anyway. But I do a lot of work before the mediation day itself with all of the individuals, speaking to them privately, talking through all of the issues, getting them to a place where they feel confident about what they want, that they know what they're negotiating, if there's money involved, that they know what the money is and where it's coming from and, you know, all that sort of thing. So they're prepared on the day to be able to sign on the dotted line. Okay, so can you give us some examples of what sort of cases you've been involved in and and the sort of outcomes that you've managed to get? Yeah, okay. So probably the most common type of partnership issue that I get involved in would be something about retirement, whether that's somebody who wants to leave but can't leave yet, for example, because of their partnership agreement, or perhaps the opposite, somebody who everybody else wants to leave, but that particular person doesn't want to leave. Or maybe it could be as simple as the retirement has actually been agreed, but the when and the how is the bit that's up for negotiation. So when is this partner going to leave and how are we going to buy them out, for example, if they've got lots of money invested in the business? That's one of the most common causes of disputes that I get involved in. So looking at that type of dispute, do you find, because I know it's often an issue, do you find that people often have a partnership agreement or do these Mm. situations often arise where there actually isn't a partnership agreement, because I am fully aware that a lot of my clients still don't have partnership agreements. They may have one in draft, but it's actually never been signed up to. So would you say that's where disputes are more likely to occur when there isn't a partnership agreement in place? Yes. And one of my top, top tips for trying to avoid some sort of difficult dispute would be to make sure that you have a partnership agreement, that it's valid, it's up to date, it's signed by everybody. So it's actually worth the paper it's written on. 
because if you don't, there's a lot more to argue about and there's no framework for how you might resolve it. But that's the beauty of what a partnership agreement can give you. So the vast majority of the ones I'm involved with sadly don't have a partnership agreement. That's what I'd guess. So obviously my work is more involved in partnerships, but you do deal with other sorts of disputes. So can you give us some examples of what you might also cover? So sadly, there there are more and more PCN disputes now. What are we? We're nearly five years into the PCN desk and there's more and more money and more and more ARRS staff now in each PCN. So sadly, there's more to argue about. And with time, more things come out of the closet. And it was always going to be tricky in some areas to get practices working together because there was probably a reason why they weren't already working together, that they hadn't already merged. In some cases, PCNs are actually made up of practices that split or demerged pre-2004. So it's always going to be a recipe for slight issues in some areas. And often those PCN disputes are again about an exit of a practice, whether that's a voluntary exit or whether it's a forced one, about money, about how the ARRS resource has been distributed, about IIF and how one practice's performance then might drag down the whole PCN's performance, how if there could be a way to sort of financially penalise that practice somehow. That's the sort of stuff that comes up in the PCN disputes. And then there's the workplace disputes as well. So this is more kind of emotional stuff, slightly between employees working together in the practice, whether they're in the same team or in a different team, frequently involves a practice manager, I find. And those ones tend to be about redefining job descriptions and how people are going to be line managed and setting expectations and methods of communication so that they can stay working together more effectively. But the PCN and the partnership ones tend much more to be about people or practices exiting. Right. So you have mentioned partnerships and, as you say, retirements and things. Just to give us an idea, have you come across other reasons why people come or end up in a dispute scenario. I mean, very often it is money because money is important to everyone, but often it can be other reasons, of course, as well. Yeah, you're right. It is often money. It's often about money. But even in the ones that aren't about money, by the time we get down to negotiating, what we ultimately end up negotiating are pounds and pence. (laughs) But there are lots of other reasons. Premises issues is a huge one that causes disputes, whether the premises are owner-occupied or whether there's a lease or not a lease and there's some sort of rent, or what to do about repairs. If there's no partnership agreement and you've got a property-owning partner that's leaving, do they have to be bought out or are they allowed to keep their share of the property and then force everyone else to sign a lease with them? There's GMC and NHS England level performance issues. Those often creep up. A long-term sickness can be an issue that gets partnerships in conflict. And there's also, sadly, a bit of crime, a bit of fraud, sexual misdemeanours with staff and patients, divorce, because sometimes partners are actually married as well. Sometimes it can involve extended families, particularly when it comes to property, because you'll often find there's some strange people who aren't partners, who are on the title deeds, ex-wives, second cousins, all sorts. It's a real mixed bag. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so that's some of the ideas of what you get involved in. And I have to say, in my time, often we have partnerships 
where we seem to manage to get accounts done and basically agreed. But we do find that the partners don't actually talk to each other. In fact, they go out of their way not to see each other. So they're running a practice together, but sort of independently, but financially they are involved with each other. So we do get quite a few of those. And quite often we as the accountant are sort of the go-between when we come to actually do the numbers and we're actually sort of passing messages between them, which is obviously not the best sort of position. But quite often I've had practices who go along quite happily in that sort of situation. It's obviously not ideal, but Mm -hmm. they do manage to sort of get along on the finances. And that's, of course, when the finance within the practice is working okay and there aren't any other issues from a financial angle. Of course, once there's a financial problem, then the whole thing becomes a problem. So with the disputes that you've dealt with, what sort of outcomes do you sometimes get? Have you had any sort of unusual outcomes that you might not have predicted at the start? Yes, I probably have if I were to think back. But the most important thing to say here would be that every situation is unique, as we all know. But the beauty of mediation, because it's creative and the solution is crafted by the people who are in the conflict themselves, is that every solution is unique as well, and it suits the people involved. If you went to court or you went to an arbitrator, somebody would say, yep, somebody owes somebody some money by something date, or you've got to stick to this thing. Whereas in a mediation, you can have all sorts of creative bits and bobs in there. So let's take the exit of a partner, for example. Everyone will be unique because there'll be different dates involved. Sometimes we negotiate for somebody to leave immediately as a partner. Sometimes we negotiate they're not going to leave for another 12 months. However, for the remaining 12 months, they're not going to enter the practice building. and They're going to be on a, quote, sabbatical or something like that. We negotiate references. We negotiate the messages that go out to staff and patients. We sometimes negotiate people coming back as a salary GP and what the broad terms of that contract are going to be in terms of workload and pay sometimes people like to be bought out quite quickly sometimes people aren't bothered and are quite happy to wait several years sometimes people want a little bit of cash up front if they're leaving but then the rest they're happy to leave behind so we can be totally creative and sometimes people think about their personal tax circumstances as well and when they'd like bits and bobs of money to be flowing around so we can do all of that to people's advantages and I think that's one of the beauties of mediation so it's totally creative and unique and therefore unpredictable for me. And that's the beauty of being a GP as well, which all the your listeners will know. That's why we like being GPs, because we never know quite what's going to come in the door. That's true. And even when that's we do, true. yeah, it, there's still a surprise. And, and even in my job doing accounts for GPs, every client is different and every mm. scenario is different. So that, again, is why I enjoy my job, because mm. we come across different scenarios all the time. I notice you use a word, and I would like an explanation. I'm sure the listeners will. Use the word arbitration. Mm. And I think some people may get mixed up between mediation and arbitration. Can you sort of explain why mediation isn't the same as arbitration? Yes, thank you for picking up on that, because that is something that people commonly confuse. Think that sometimes they think they're the same thing. So an arbitration is when a legally qualified 
person, so somebody who's been like a solicitor or something like that, will come in and they'll sit down and they'll review the legal arguments of the parties' positions, just the legal arguments. They're not interested in any of the personal stuff that's gone on. And then they'll make a decision that's called an award. And everybody has already agreed from the outset that they will abide by whatever award the arbitrator makes. So unlike a mediator, the arbitrator is actually making a decision there. They're making it purely on the legal facts. So their decision is often very sort of simple. So, for example, if it was about expulsion of a partner, an arbitrator will be being asked whether that expulsion was valid or not. And they might say yes or they might say no. But then what people sometimes find once they've been through that process is although they've got that, that hasn't actually resolved the issue. And then they've still got to go back and unpick it all and work out how they're going to settle that partner and what's going to happen since because they've still been working at the surgery all that time, perhaps because yeah. they said they weren't going to leave, you know. So it, it often doesn't actually settle all of the issues. And that of course is it's costly because you're paying your legal team to craft your legal case and then present it to an arbitrator. And of course you pay the arbitrator as well. So that takes time and money, more time and more money than a mediation would. Right. So that's good to know. And I think at the end of a partnership agreement, it's the agreement to some sort of arbitration that's often one of the latter paragraphs in the partnership agreement. That's what that relates to. So actually mediation isn't referred to in partnership agreements at all because it's a completely different sort of way of trying to resolve issues. Yeah, actually finding in the more recent partnership agreements that have been drafted now, it does refer to mediation instead of arbitration. And it refers to the the CEDA process and the model mediation procedure, which I and most mediators will follow. Because although it's not, it's it's kind of not a formal legal thing, your outcome from it hopefully is a formal legal thing, which is a legally binding settlement agreement that I will have drafted and everybody will have signed. You see what I mean? Mm. Yeah. But you're right, a lot of the kind of older partnership agreements will mention arbitration or will mention the local medical committee. And most local medical committees actually don't do mediation per se, like how I described it, but a kind of facilitated conversation, I think, is probably what they describe I think perhaps I have had clients who've gone down that route and others who've tried that route and it hasn't been successful because it doesn't sort of go far enough, if you see what I mean. Okay, so we've gone through our dispute. So the impact of that, so you've explained for, say, an exiting partner, but are there other outcomes of a dispute that people might not necessarily anticipate when they go into it? Yeah, probably the most common thing is that people don't anticipate exits. They think that they're going to be able to use a mediation to kind of remedy the situation. But then actually, as the time unfolds and I speak to the people, it becomes clear that some of these people do actually want to leave. And then once they understand the mediation process and that you can use it just as much to remedy a situation as you can to exit yourself from a commercial relationship, people might then use the mediation to leave. So leaving is actually the surprise thing that happens most commonly as well. Right. So most um, people go into mediation not necessarily predicting that that would Mm -hmm. be the Mm -hmm. outcome and what about say if the whole partnership sort of almost dissolves and they look at handing their contract back can you end up in that what sort of scenario would perhaps 
end up with that result. So that's a very worst case scenario, but sadly I have seen it happen as a result of a conflict just being so enormous and too daunting to manage. People will decide that actually it's easier, it's quicker and cheaper to wind up the partnership and hand the contract back and get rid of the liabilities than it is to go through an arbitration or a legal proceeding if they haven't had success in mediation. But you can use the mediation itself to negotiate how you're going to dissolve your partnership and how you're going to separate the money and that sort of thing. Obviously, you have to follow your GMS or PMS contract, but you can use the mediation to help you do that. Okay, so from your experience then, how would you recommend GPs try not to get themselves into this sort of situation in the first place? (laughs) Yeah, well, I think we mentioned the top tip already, which was to make sure that you've got your bits and bobs in order, your agreements. So your partnership agreement, your PCN agreement, your employment contracts, your staff handbooks, you need to make sure you have them, that they're up to date, that they're valid, that they say everything that you're already doing and that they cover everything that you want them to cover. And if you're doing something different to what your partnership agreement says, then just change your partnership agreement so it mimics what you're doing. Because it's very difficult to, on one hand, say, oh, well, we, we don't do it that way. And then on another day, come and say, well, actually, we need to stick to our partnership agreement now about this particular issue. You need to be a bit consistent with your application of it. So make it work for you. So there's less to argue about if you've got your valid agreement. As I said, most of the disputes I get involved in, there isn't one. And then there needs to be some governance as well around decision making. And that word kind of makes GPs shiver really a little bit because it's not our expertise, but we we have practice managers to help us with that. So decisions need to be made properly. They need to be communicated properly, recorded properly. So like we were saying, Kate, for partners, that means you need to meet. And lots of partners don't meet. Well, lots of the ones I get involved with don't meet. Don't even meet for coffee. Don't meet at year-end to discuss the accounts. might just sign a piece of paper. But you need to do that. And you might say, oh, that's unnecessary bureaucracy to sort of have agendas and minutes floating around that people improve. But I've seen on a number of occasions it can really save you bacon if you've got all of that in order because it narrows down the amount of stuff that can be argued about. And you can have a clear kind of audit trail that shows that you've made some decision that was in accordance with a decision-making process that you'd already agreed to. Because people in disputes love to love to argue about everything, love to argue about what they've already agreed on and kind of carry on an argument. So disagreeing about what you've agreed on is a classic. So having all of that sort of stuff together really helps. And people need to socialise as well. Disagreements, they begin with miscommunications, misunderstandings. If things are going through emails and third parties, they're more likely to go wrong. It's more likely to go better if you're face-to-face doing it over a sandwich. And it's much more difficult to be nasty to each other if you have to meet once a week for a sandwich. It's difficult to pay somebody, a lawyer, to send a really nasty letter to somebody and then go upstairs and have a coffee with them. And we we have disagreements around us all the time, but if you can bring them up early before they fester, then you're more likely to get things resolved. So if you've got this nice culture where you're open and you're meeting regularly, you'll feel more comfortable to do it. You'll have the opportunity to do it. And you'll just generally be better at communicating with each other because you communicate anyway. So it's less likely to go wrong. So those are all my simple but top tips to help. Yeah. 
I can say from experience that does work because obviously I myself am in a partnership, but we have a very open door policy here, both with our staff and with the partners and work forever popping into each other's rooms and talking about problem clients, should I say. But also we do have set, say, monthly, generally monthly meetings where we formally and we do have a formal agenda and we do sit down and then our practice director then sits down and writes out the minutes of that meeting that we can all read to make sure that nothing was misinterpreted. And I think you're right. I think there are a lot of partnerships. And I think particularly now with partners doing less and less hours in the practice, it's quite difficult, certainly in a larger practice, for them to all meet at the same time. And I don't like Zoom. I think everything is much better face-to-face. But even if you had a a regular Zoom meeting, but I think you're right. I think that regular meeting and also, as you say, social events. I mean, most people have some sort of Christmas event. We also have a summer sort of barbecue event, but sometimes we do with the staff try and get other social events together. And and you're right. If you have meant socially, whether it's, you know, over a coffee or or, or over a, a beer in the pub or something, it is sort of more difficult to get problems to sort of go down a sort of more legal route. But I think also what you said about trying not to let problems fester. So if there is any inkling that there's going to be a problem coming up to try and get it out in the open early and get it resolved early before it becomes that bigger problem that then may ultimately end up with the partner leaving the practice. So I think I think that's really important. So if somebody were to try to get you involved, how would they go about it? How does it work in practical terms? So a practice is welcome to approach me directly, although often it will be the local medical committee or your accountants or your medical legal specialists that say, hey, have you considered mediation? And here's a list of people that I work with. And then you can find a mediator that's on there. But people can approach a mediator directly. And then the mediator will do some work to make sure that every party to the dispute, so every person in the dispute, is happy to have a mediation and happy for that person to be the mediator and then they'll go ahead and start having individual confidential conversations with everybody and start getting them to the point where they're really clear about what they want and what they'd be prepared to accept because it's not uncommon for people in a conflict to not really have thought about what they want they've got stuck on the fact that they're right or they're owed money and they haven't thought about what they'd actually want out of it or what they'd be prepared to accept. So then there's a lot of work that goes on in the background. And people will then often have to speak to their spouses, maybe pick up the phone to the accountants and say, how are we doing? How much money is this person going to need if I'm going to buy them out? And they'll have to look at their cash flow. There's lots of things to consider. So then a little bit of time needs to be taken. And then we go for a whole day. People are sometimes surprised that it takes a whole day, but it really genuinely does take a whole day to resolve the issue. So we sit down face to face for that initial meeting and then we break off into separate rooms and I as a mediator just basically go between the rooms, the parties, taking offers backwards and forwards and just nailing out, hammering out an agreement, if you like, until we've got it all sorted. And then everybody signs it and off they go. 
Okay, so one of the problems I think I have come across is actually getting somebody to the table in the first place, mm-hmm. particularly if I'm trying to assist a partner who's left the practice and is trying to resolve their final accounts with their previous practice. And that practice, or sometimes it's very often they were in a two-partner practice and they've left, so there's one individual there dealing with. And that person just refuses. They just think that they're right and that's it. And there's no movement. Is there any way of trying to get around that sort of situation? Yeah. So sometimes the threat of legal proceedings or being really clear with somebody about, well, what is the alternative here if you don't sort this out? What could potentially happen can be enough to bring people to the table. Sometimes it can be a chat with a mediator about what mediation actually is. Mm. And that, as I said, it's this safe space where it's confidential. It's without prejudice. You can't make things any worse for yourself. You can't get yourself into legal hot water. Makes people more likely to come around. And I often find that very skilled professionals, LMCs, accountants will try really hard to kind of do a mediation and get nowhere. And people seem really entrenched and almost unreasonable. And then a mediator comes along and suddenly everything changes. And it's because the mediators created that without prejudice space. Lots of GPs are genuinely scared of putting their foot in it or saying the wrong thing and feel that they can't admit any sort of liability or offer any sort of negotiation on a compromise on how they might resolve their differences until I create that safe space for them. And then people say, sorry, People acknowledge each other's emotions and they say, right, I agree. I want want to get this sorted. I don't want this to drag on. Let's see if we can hash this out today. Okay, I think you're absolutely right. I think from my perspective as an accountant, I have tried to do this sort of job, but it, it is difficult. And I'm not a solicitor, so I don't know the legal side of things. And very often we do get resolutions But often we come to a sticking point where we sort of, as you say, we can't move forward. So that's really good to know that we can get somebody like you in. So I know what some of the listeners will be wondering is, you say a whole day to get this sorted, having had pre-meetings and everything. It sounds very expensive, but I have no doubt that it's going to be a lot, lot cheaper than actually getting your solicitor involved. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I think if you were to take somebody to court, it would cost tens of thousands. Same with arbitration. But a mediation with what I can only speak for me and my fees, but you're looking at around three to four thousand for the whole thing. So that includes all of the preparatory conversations, the day of mediation, me drafting the settlement agreement. So on the face of it, that's a relatively small amount of money compared to the alternative. Very, very reasonable, I would certainly Um, say, compared to solicitors. And then, of course, if there's anything legal to be resolved maybe subsequently, then you can maybe get your solicitor involved right at the very, very end. But at least all the talking bits can have all been been dealt with. Sometimes we agree some things that are going to go in a new partnership agreement or a new lease or an employment contract, and they're in the settlement agreement, but then there'll be a thing where we're saying we're going to instruct so-and-so to actually get that partnership agreement off the ground. And the other thing it's worth saying about the money side of things is that most ICBs, when they're asked, are pretty happy to reimburse the costs of a mediation, certainly for PCMs and quite often for practices as well, because your ICBs don't want to see your practice 
struggle. They don't want you to have your contract back. They're quite happy to throw a £3,000 to make sure that that doesn't happen. And if you're a PCM, there's often PCM development funds and bits and bobs that you can tap into and you can say, yeah, we're going to use this pot of money to pay for the mediation. So it's often not coming out of the partner's pockets either. No, well, that's that's really, really good to know. Okay, well, that's been really enlightening, actually, Claire. So thanks very much for that. Any last comments other than do get a partnership agreement (laughs) done? So we're always saying that to our clients. But I think a lot of the problem dealing with the partnership agreement, because it's always such a lot of paper and everyone has to go through it. It is time consuming, but it really is important because you don't really want to be ending up needing your help in the first place and if you can avoid it that's really what you want isn't it exactly it will pay for itself even if it's decades down the line it will pay for itself and get a good medical accountant as well that would be my other (laughs) (laughs) of course I would endorse that (laughs) okay so I think we'll end it there so thank you everyone for listening and thank you Claire for all your insight into that and hopefully some of our clients will maybe try and get hold of you so if those listening enjoyed it please can you share and subscribe to catch our fortnightly podcasts and just for me to say thank you very much claire and we'll see everyone at another podcast you have been listening to rbp's accountancy on prescription podcast for any updates please visit www.rbp.co.uk or follow us on twitter at rbpca The contents of this podcast is for general guidance and informational purposes only and does not constitute any form of advice. The information provided by RBP is of a general nature. Appropriate and tailored advice or independent research should be obtained before making any decisions. RBP does not accept any liability for any loss or damage which is incurred from you acting or not acting as a result of listening to Accountancy on Prescription.